Let's turn again to John chapter number 12. We're going to reread two verses. I bet you've already figured out what we're going to talk about today, haven't you? If you missed it, uh, that's why we're going to reread these two verses. Okay, so John chapter 12, look at verse 11, uh, rather verse 12, and also verse 13. On the next day, much people that were come to the feast when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem took branches of palm trees and went forth to meet him and cried, Hosanna, blessed is the king that cometh in the name of the Lord. Shall we bow our heads and close our eyes and have a word of prayer? Father, I thank you for the good folk that came out to church this morning. Thank you that we have the nice sunshine outside. Lord, it is a bit warm, but we thank you that we have other opportunities to moderate that some. Thank you that we can have the air conditioning here this morning. And uh, Lord, we could probably use a little rain, but we know you know what our circumstances are and understand our needs better than we do. So we leave all of that in your hands. We understand that it's summertime. Uh, and so we're grateful for your control of the weather and your wisdom, Lord, because if we were doing these things, we'd make an awful mess. And we're just so grateful for your watch care and your presence. Lord, today, as we think about the 4th of July that we celebrated yesterday, we thank you for America. We realize, Lord, America is not perfect. We also know that no nation is. We also consider it a great privilege that you allowed us to be born here and to enjoy the freedoms that we have, not the least of which is the freedom of religion, the ability to assemble, uh, the opportunity without fear of government involvement or repression to worship as the dictates of our conscience show us. And uh, we thank you for all of these things. We thank you that even uh, in this advanced stage of unfaithfulness to you, still America is a place that sends many missionaries to the foreign field and sends a lot of funds in order that foreign missionary endeavor may go on. And there are still many people in this country who love you and who believe in you and who want to see the kingdom of Jesus Christ advanced. And so we cry out this morning for mercy. We recognize, Lord, we don't deserve anything from you except your judgment. We see so many things going wrong. We see the Supreme Court decisions that seem to be off the charts. We see public behavior and civil unrest that seems to be off the charts. And we have an election coming, and all of these things cause us great concern. We, we leave it in your hands, Father, and pray that you will work it out. And you will work it out for your honor and glory. But if it would please you that somehow we might be spared yet a little space, if only for the sake of the gospel, and help the church in these dark days to be faithful. Pray you'll give wisdom to the folks here and guidance in the days to come. And just pray for your blessing to continue that this outpost, this lighthouse here on this corner may go on and prosper and be a, a, a place where men and women and boys and girls can always hear the truth of God's word and the saving power of Jesus Christ. Bless in the time that we have to spend together in God's word today. For I pray these things in Jesus' holy and wonderful name. Amen. Well, it is the 4th of July weekend, and you might be thinking, well, he's just going to stick with his series, which I am, but I've sort of shared with you my philosophy of this in the past, that I try to check and see. I have a little more bias this time because we don't have a lot of time. And so I was hoping and praying that there might be one of these trees on my list that we could look at this morning that would lend itself not only to a good message, but to the... Um, the idea of freedom and victory and the, the types of things that are on our minds with the 4th of July weekend. And so I've chosen the palm tree. 
Unfortunately, I don't have enough Sundays to quite finish everything I wanted to do in this series. We're close, but not there. But I chose this one today among the others that I might have picked for the very reason that we're going to style it the the victory tree. The victory tree. And I think you'll find that if you you can be patient and wait till the end of the message, you'll see where I will try to tie that in uh, to the idea of the 4th of July weekend at the very end. So I'm trying to to do two things. I, I certainly want to be aware of the weekend that we're on. Let's do the first part of this message like we've done before. Let's look at the what we know. And what you have here, of course, is a blend of things that we might just learn from a secular source about a tree, which is true regardless, or Bible background, more importantly. So we kind of set the stage for where we want to go to see the message that is in this. And once again, bear in mind that in this series, Trees with a Message, we've kind of broken it into two categories. First of all, these towering trees the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the tree of life, the tree of Calvary are unique, one-of-a-kind, unparalleled trees. But when we come over to just the telling trees, which are just the pages of, Bi- of the Bible and revealing the different trees that, that were part of Bible times, we oftentimes find that there's a truth there, there's a message there, hence the idea of telling trees. What is this one telling us today? What is the palm tree telling us today? It's telling us something about victory, okay? So we're going to be working towards that. But as far as what we know, this, this one is a little tricky. If you are doing this with a looking for references to palm or palms in the Bible, and you're doing this the old-fashioned way, there's nothing wrong with that except it takes a ton of time. But uh, if you're doing it the old-fashioned way, you would see this as you go along. Like if you were looking down through Strong's Concordance at the word palm, then the word palms, S, you'd have to go through all those references. If you're doing it electronically, if you're not careful, you can still be fooled. For the reason being that there are some references to palm that don't have anything to do with our subject this morning. I'll give you an example of what I'm talking about. Like if you turn to the book of Joel, you'll find about three, maybe four references to the palmer worm. Remember reading about that? One of the four stages of the locust. But that doesn't have anything to do with what we're talking about today. But an electronic search for palm will pull that up and count it in the references. So you pull them out. Then you'll find some references that have to do with another kind of palm. You have two right now right? And so if you're talking about both of them, you have palms. But there are some references to striking. Namely, in the Gospels, you'll find a reference to striking Jesus with the palm or palms of their hands. So you have to call them out. Once you do this, you still come up with about 32 references to what we're talking about this morning, the palm tree. And so not quite as many uh, as like the fig tree or the olive tree where we had in the 50s of references, but 32 is still a goodly number. In other words, this is well represented in the Bible, and that's appropriate because the uh, palm tree is well represented in the Holy Land. It's It's a common tree there, common enough. Not so few as the juniper tree where we only had four references in the whole Bible, but 32. So that sort of is interesting. Palm trees, as I say, are a Bible land distinctive. In other words, you wouldn't find palm trees everywhere, but you do find them frequently in the Holy Land. They grow to a height of 40 to 50 feet. In some cases, you can even find examples that grow to a height of 
80 feet, and you know they're very distinctive. You recognize them right away because you basically have a, a tall stalk or trunk, if you want to call it that, and then a head, and everything is there. The trees that we're talking about in the Bible also are also sometimes known as date palms because they will also produce the, the date palm. So you have those dates that are an edible fruit that they produce. Here's something else to realize, and it, this is going to begin to tie in, so try to, try to follow some of these what seem to be loose details. Palm trees are particularly associated with oases. That's true in the Bible. That's just true generally. Okay, They are particularly associated with oases or especially associated with tropical-type climates. So it's not surprising that the best examples, the most noteworthy examples of palm trees that you have in the Bible lands occur at Jericho, which is basically a tropical climate. You have to realize now, see, you think about the geography of the Holy Land. When you're at the Jordan River, you're at below sea level at that point anyway, but you're coming up to the tablelands of the Judean mountains and hills down in the south where Jericho is. So Jericho kind of sits in that, almost that Jordan River Valley. It's hot in that place. It's a tropical type of climate, and you'll have references. Here's an example. Deuteronomy 34.3, you don't need to look at this, but we'll have a number of references, several references in the Bible where you'll find that Jericho is actually known as the city of palm trees. And that's kind of interesting. That's because Jericho is more or less of an oasis. It has uh, a, a, a tropical type of climate. They flourish there. You have another place where they are, are very well known, and that is En Gedi. Does that strike a chord with anybody here this morning? En Gedi is noteworthy in the Bible. It is an oasis. It's along, you go south, and it's along the western shore of the Dead Sea. From the Holy Land perspective, it's east, but from the perspective of the Dead Sea, it's the western shore. In other words, what's, what's up against what we think of as Bible lands? But En Gedi is known to us in the Bible as one of those places where David sought refuge from Saul. There were caves there. The Dead Sea is down below a little bit. It's up in the hills just a bit, and it's kind of a fortress amongst those hills, but it has springs and rivers there, and of course, then below the Dead Sea. So it may very well be in this area where one of the caves was that David cut Saul's robe. But it's known to us from that, and you find some very outstanding examples of palm trees there and along the banks of the Jordan River. Another thing that I've tried to call your attention to under this first part of the message, what we know is uh, the first reference to palm or palm tree in the Bible. So let's look at a verse. Let's go to Exodus chapter 15. Exodus, the 15th chapter. Now, is it kind of interesting to you that Several of these that we've looked at so far, when we've called attention to this first reference, have been in Genesis. But this one we need to penetrate just a little further into the Scripture, the second book of the Bible, Exodus, and coming to chapter 15, the very last verse of the chapter. Now, I want you to get this because I believe we do have a significance. Oftentimes this law of first reference drops some hint, contains some seed, as to what we may see unfolding. And it picks up on things that we've already said, because look, 
It says, and they came to Elam, or Elim, where were twelve wells of water and threescore and ten palm trees, and they encamped there by the waters. So you get the impression of an oasis. They have, in fact, if we were to back up, we don't take a lot of time to read these verses. I think you probably remember the story. They have, in fact, just come from a place called Mara. So all you have to do is look in your Bible and just look up at what precedes the five, six, seven verses preceding. Tell the story. They had just come out of the land of Egypt. They come to a place called Mara. What happens there? Water's bitter. You can't drink it. It's kind of interesting. You, you could possibly consider a message in this series based on that text because you remember when they complained and murmured, the Lord showed Moses a tree. That's what it says. He showed Moses a tree, which when Moses threw into the waters, they were healed. Well, I know another tree of healing, but that's not my message today. So they've just come from that difficult experience there where they kind of have an opportunity to really experience the rigors of the wilderness. I mean, if you don't have water and you don't have food, you are in trouble quickly in the wilderness, right? And so they come through that difficult experience and then they come to this place called Elam or Elim and there are 12 wells of water and three score and 10 palm trees. And the Bible says they encamped there by the waters. Now, I've said this to you before, but the study of numbers in the Bible can be rewarding. There are some people that just get whacked out with it and go way, way, way too far. Doesn't mean that those people should negate certain truths that are there. Well, 12, as you know, is the number of the people of God. So it's kind of interesting. You have 12 wells of water, which means you have a well of water for every tribe. And 70, that number is used frequently in the Bible too. And one of the things that it's associated with is the days of our lives shall be three score and 10, we're told. And if by reason of strength, four score, but the number that's so often given, and even today we have that phrase, well, I got my three score and 10, I'm on credit now. <laughs> you know, we sometimes say those things. We still think of three score and 10. So if you put this together, it's kind of an interesting thought. They come to this place in the wilderness. It's an oasis where they find a well of water for every tribe and a palm tree for every year of the life. Just kind of interesting. So looking to a broader point, what have they encountered? They have encountered in the wilderness rest a place of refuge, a place of rest. Their needs are met. They have water. There are trees for shade. It's an oasis, and it's a place of rest. I think there is a hint in this. I think there's a bit of a foreshadowing in this idea of rest. This rest here was transitory because what was going to have to happen? They can't stay there, right? You have to keep moving because there's another place of rest to which they are headed, which is the promised land where the rest of their inheritance, R-E-S-T, not rest in the sense of remaining part, but the rest that was promised to them was there. So this is, tr this is transitory. In other words, it's a temporary, that's why I call it an oasis. It's a temporary place, but 
I, I, wanna, I just want you to remember that I mentioned this because we'll come to it later in the message that this rest is transitory, but there's another rest that is not. And that's what we're going to be looking at as we move further into this. The last sort of just summary type of thing, what we know is the palm trees are best known not only for their distinctive shape, but their distinctive branches. So it's all at the top, right? Now, I mean, I, if I were to call a state my home state, I could adopt Pennsylvania since I've spent a lot of years here. Not quite half my life, but I've spent a lot of years here. But it really, if there were a state that I, that I call my home state, it would be South Carolina. I grew up in Charleston along the coast. And then, of course, in years of schooling, I was 10 years in the very area to which we're moving. So I spent a lot of time also in Pennsylvania, and I had four years in Illinois. Those are basically the places that I've been. But the reason I tell you this is because South Carolina, the state tree is the palmetto tree. And that's kind of a smaller version. If you've uh, ever seen the palmetto tree, they typically don't get over 30 feet in height. Uh, and the trunk of the tree has those you know, those, you call them limbs, but they're not traditional limbs, but they have those things about yay long. And, but a palm tree doesn't have that. A palm tree just basically has a wood stalk or trunk that goes up and then all the business that's going to go on is at the top. That's where you have those 6 to 12 foot branches that we think of the palm leaves or the palm branches. It's all there. That's pretty significant, 6 to 12 feet, right? So what now can we learn? We take all this, try to put it together, see where it might lead us, and I want to transition to the second part of the message. Well, here's the idea. Here's the whole thing, the victory tree, because historically palm branches have been used as a symbol of victory. I'm sure you know that. That's not just true in the Bible. That's true in general. But I do want to give you a, a Bible example. And I'm guessing that probably not too many people here this morning have ever had occasion to study what's known as the intertestamental period. What's that? Sometimes we talk about the 400 silent years. It's different descriptions for a similar thing. In other words, you've got Malachi, which ends the Old Testament. And then you've got roughly 400 years <clears throat> until we get to the New Testament time. And those are called the intertestamental years because the Old Testament's here, but it's separated from the New Testament by a period of, well, let's just use the round number, 400 years, right? You've heard all this before. But even though we don't have Bible coverage of that time, there's still history going on in that place. And what do you know happened in the 4th century B.C.? The world empire was the Greek empire, right? And you had Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great didn't last. Remember this? And this is actually, some of this is actually prophesied in Daniel's prophecy, that notable horn, right? Do you remember this? Broken off. He didn't last. And in its place came up four. Well, those four were his generals. So this vast Alexander the Great Empire, basically, instead of having one person now to lead it, <clears throat> was parceled out between these four generals. The two that are interesting to us right now are the Seleucids. Let's just think about the Syria area. This is north of Israel. So what's to Israel's north? The Syrians, the Seleucid, Seleucus was the general. 
in the south, what's after Israel? Egypt, right? And that's the Ptolemies. There was a general Ptolemy. So the family of the Seleucids in the north, the family of the Ptolemies in the... And the Holy Land, and this is part of the genius of Bible geography, God puts his land, his people, his scriptures basically between the other peoples of the world of that day where they had to travel back and forth in order that those... Because Israel, Israel was called to be a missionary nation. She failed, and God sent her into dispersion. God basically said, if you're not going to be a missionary nation and share my word with people as they come through and live faithfully to me so that there's a testimony to my truth and my name, I'll disperse you, and it'll happen that way. But they were placed strategically there. All right, now why that's important to us is, is that when the, the Seleucids to the north came down, also prophesied in the book of Daniel, you have a man by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes. You've heard this name before? He was the one, they captured Jerusalem they went in, they, they desecrated the altar in the temple of God by sacrificing a pig on it and by forcing the priests to eat that. So what did this cause to happen? This caused to happen what today we would call freedom fighters to rise up. Or you can call them terrorists, but <laughs> it kind of depends on what side of the fence you're on. But the Jewish freedom fighters were the Maccabees. Have you heard that name before? And so you have the, what's called the Maccabean Revolt. All right, well, the man who was leading the Maccabees, Judas Maccabeus, when the, it, the Israeli freedom fighters finally retook the citadel of the temple in Jerusalem, they came in there in victory, singing hymns and waving palm branches as a symbol of their victory. Now, folks, this is interesting from a lot of perspectives, not only demonstrating that even in Bible history, the palm tree was a symbol of victory, but in the ancient world, and often still used in that context, there were coins that were stamped with palm branches in commemoration of that occasion that the temple was retaken and liberated from these all this desecration and, and these people who didn't have a right to be there. Do you also know this? Have you ever heard of the books of First and Second Maccabees? Well, they're in the Apocrypha. So if you actually have an original, like earlier, like people talk today about the AV 1611, well, it, it includes the Apocrypha. So you could find it there, but you can also look it up online. But they record some of this history, those books too. I want to read you a verse. Okay, this is not the Bible. <laughs> but I want to read you the historical reference so you can hear it. In 1 Maccabees 13.51, listen to this. On the 23rd day of the second month, in the 171st year, the Jews entered the citadel with shouts of praise, the waving of palm branches, the playing of harps and cymbals and lyres, and singing of hymns and canticles because a great enemy of Israel had been crushed. This is hugely significant, not only for our study of the palm tree, but thinking about what took place on Palm Sunday. 
what they might have been thinking, what was in their minds from their own history. Let me just sort of tease you with that for a moment, and I'll come to it in a moment. So thinking about other things we find in the Old Testament, I don't want to say as much, but there are some little things where you might, you might sense maybe some anticipations of some of this significance because um, the Feast of Tabernacles. All right, so think about Israel's religious year. They started with Passover. The last feast was Tabernacles. It was in the fall. It was meant to celebrate the ingathering. The full harvest is now come in. So they rejoiced. And what did they do as a part of this? They were commanded to go and take down branches and erect booths and live in those booths during the week to remind themselves of something. Let's go to Leviticus. So you might be still parked in Exodus. Let's go to Leviticus chapter 23. And I think, again, this sort of ties in with a lot of what we're seeing. Leviticus chapter 23, drop down to verse 40. And it's very significant that what we're talking about takes place on the first, on the 15th, the first day of the feast, the 15th day of the, of the, of the month, of the seventh month. And the Day of Atonement is the 10th day of the seventh month. So it basically these two events are climaxing. They're the pinnacles, really, of the religious year, the Day of Atonement and then the Feast of Tabernacles. Look at verse 40. And ye shall take you on the first day the boughs of goodly trees, branches of palm trees, and the boughs of thick trees and willows of the brook, and ye shall rejoice before the Lord your God seven days, and ye shall keep a feast unto the Lord seven days in the year. It shall be a statute forever in your generations. Ye shall celebrate it in the seventh month. Ye shall dwell in booths seven days. <clears throat> All that are Israelites born shall dwell in booths. Why? <clears throat> that your generations may know that I made the children of Israel to dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. And Moses declared unto the children of Israel the feasts of the Lord. So what does tabernacles commemorate? I brought you out of the land of Egypt, the great victory of redemption, the great victory over the satanic forces that were sort of represented with Pharaoh and the Egyptians and all of that. When we think about how, the, how that plays out in, 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 the, in the later meaning and in, in the symbolism of the Bible, the great victory of redemption with coming out of Egypt, the Passover. I brought you out. And then, of course, the great victory and joy of the harvest, God's provision, as well as his watch care in the wilderness. All these things were great victories for them, but it all started with being brought out of the land of what? Bondage. Another footnote, <clears throat> they were also used extensively in the temple decoration. So these, this palm tree has a, has a 1 Kings chapter 6. There's some interesting stuff here. I'm just going to throw out a few things, but we have to keep moving. 1 Kings chapter 6. <clears throat> I'm going to read you one verse. There are a number of them here, but it was used extensively in the decoration of the temple being carved on the walls. 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 29. 
tells us this, and he carved all the walls of the house round about with carved figures of cherubim and palm trees and open flowers within and without. And something really interesting is if you were to turn, which I'm not asking you to, but to Ezekiel 40 and 41, you would find that it's also there in the new temple. So God has some purpose in this symbolism, the palm tree figures into it. However, let's get to the crux of the matter. Okay, if you've been waiting, it's coming. The crux of the matter is this is another one of those trees in the Bible, like the juniper tree, that is inseparable, really, from a particular occasion in Bible history. And that occasion was what we read about in John 12. So go back to John chapter 12. We even call it after that name. We even call it Palm Sunday. Now, if you read Mark's account and Luke's account, or Mark's account and Matthew's account, he just says tree branches. John is the only one to specify that among those, or probably the main thing there, were palm branches. And so it was in the minds of these jubilant Hebrews they were celebrating what they saw as cause for a great victory. They were singing. They were saying, if you look at these words, Hosanna to the king of Israel. Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. By doing that, they were citing a messianic prophecy. They were citing a messianic psalm that clearly identified Jesus as the Messiah and the king of Israel. So keep your fingers here. We're not going to do a lot more looking around, but go back. You need to see this to Psalm 118. Because there's really something important to see to get the meaning out of this thing. Psalm 118. Beginning to read in verse 25, it says this. Save now. Do you know what that is? Do you know what Hosanna means? That's this word. When you read in Psalm 118, verse 25, save now, it's Hosanna. That's what that word means. So they were, they were quoting that. Save now, I beseech thee, O Lord. I beseech thee, send now prosperity. Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. They said, blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. They clearly recognized or hailed him, at least, in that terminology, identifying him. As the one who is coming in the name of the Lord, we have blessed you out of the house of the Lord. It's no wonder these people were excited. It's no wonder that they were wild with jubilation because they were anticipating a great victory. What victory were they anticipating? Well, unfortunately, they were anticipating a political one. Right? They, weren't, they had no idea that Jesus was coming to die on the cross. They had every idea that he was coming to be the king of Israel. The, almost like Simon Maccabeus, that he would be the conquering one to come into Jerusalem to get rid of the Romans and establish or reestablish the kingdom of Israel and bring to fulfillment all of these amazing promises of the Old Testament concerning Messiah and the kingdom of God. Save now. 
but they weren't thinking about the cross. The salvation that they were thinking about was a different kind altogether. Instead, the victory that Jesus came to bring was not political, it was spiritual. Just like the deliverance from Egypt was a spiritual thing because they were delivered from the house of bondage. And so the victory that Jesus Christ came to bring was a spiritual one. It was the triumph of redemption. And the symbolism of the victory that Jesus came to bring on that occasion is confirmed by the last reference that we have in Scripture to the palm tree. Let's go to it. Keep your finger in John, but go to the book of Revelation. We're going to close this message today by looking at a couple of astonishing scriptures when you really dig into them. Let's go to the book of Revelation chapter 7. This is the last reference to the palm in scripture, but look at what it gives away. It's all come full it's all come full course now. Now we're seeing the fullness of what's here. Chapter 7 verse 9, after this I beheld and lo a great multitude which no man could number of all nations and kindreds and people and tongues stood before the throne and before the Lamb clothed with white robes and palms in their hands. What victory are they celebrating? And cried with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God which sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb. And all the angels stood round about the throne and about the elders and the four beasts and fell before the throne on their faces and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be unto our God forever and ever. Amen. And one of the elders said unto me, What are these which are arrayed in white robes? And whence came they? And I said unto him, Sir, thou knowest. And he said unto me, These are they which came out of great tribulation, or we could say the great tribulation, and have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. They were delivered from Egypt from the house of bondage and came with the significance of the Passover lamb and the blood shed. And God said to them, when I see the blood, I will pass over you. The house in which you reside, it has the blood on the lintels. It has the blood on the doorposts. And therefore, there is a rest within that that is secure, that is safe. You are safe in that place from the wrath of God. Well, there's another place, I tell you, beloved, you're safe from the wrath of God. And it's not a transitory rest like Elim. It's not one that you experience for a day or two while you take a break. It's one that is a part of this Christian experience every day and that we will enjoy and have all into eternity. And that rest is the assurance that we enjoy because of the finished work of Christ on the cross of Calvary. If you're resting in that, you can have full and complete assurance. You can know the victory is yours. So let's look at one or two of these other scriptures and we'll be done. Turn to the book of Colossians, chapter 2. 
Some of this gets really interesting and exciting. You just have to have a spade or some good tools to get this out of here. But I think you know this verse quite well. It's talking about Jesus on the cross, but it's going to use terms of triumph and victory. When it says this, and having spoiled principalities and powers. Let's stop. Who are principalities and powers? These are spiritual angelic forces of evil. All right. Having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. Look at the word triumph. You only have that particular Greek word one other place in the Bible. And that's 2 Corinthians 2.14 where it says that God makes us always to triumph in Christ. The background of that word is startling because that's the exact word that you would use in secular literature if you were going to accord a Roman general a victory celebration. A Roman general who was off in war and who triumphed, who won a decisive victory in the name of the empire, was on the field as the commander-in-chief during that victory killed a significant number of the enemy and procured a decisive victory on the part of the empire, it was rare, but it was done. They were accorded a singular privilege of a victory march, wherein they would come home and there would be a parade. I want to read you about this. This is the word we're talking about. The figure is that of a victorious military leader, the Roman imperator, which is what he was called on this occasion. He was the general, but he was called that for this occasion. Leading in triumphal procession his captives of war. This was one of the highest honors a Roman general could obtain. Certain conditions must be met before he could have the procession. One, he must have been the actual commander-in-chief in the field. Two, furthermore, the campaign must have been completely and successfully concluded. Three, a large number of the enemy must have fallen in battle. And four, a positive extension of territory gained. The figure is peculiarly applicable to Christ's work in the overcoming the powers of evil on the cross. He was the commander-in-chief in the field when the victory was gained over the most powerful of all enemy forces, the satanic kingdom, and there was a positive extension of territory gained for the kingdom of God And that's the redemption that is in Christ Jesus that sets us free. Victory. I'm telling you, folks, I want to sort of tie this together now. The shade under Calvary's tree is a permanent rest. You can go for a while and enjoy the oasis at Elam. It's transitory, but it pictures something else. The victory that Christ secured, you can rest in that assurance for all your days, all the days of your pilgrimage on this earth and on into eternity because it's the completed rest, it's a complete victory that was only hinted at in Exodus 15, 27 at Elam. Christ's victory is complete. So, when this corruption shall have put on incorruption. And this mortal shall have put on immortality. Then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in 
victory. The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. In him, we have complete rest and full assurance. You know, beloved, I have to chide myself because this rest is not only something that you can have in respect to your salvation, but it's really something that we're supposed to enjoy every day in respect to living. We do sometimes pass through these wilderness situations. We do sometimes get a little anxious. Life is difficult in the old wilderness of this world, but there's a rest to be had. Jesus says, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. When we just relax enough, long enough to trust him to work it out for us, we experience that rest. Well, we have freedom today. Speaking of July 4th, we have freedom today because of many a hard-fought victory on battlefields. Do you know, on July the 3rd, 1776, John Adams, who became our second president, wrote this. Yesterday, the greatest question was decided whichever was debated in America. And a greater one perhaps never was nor will be decided among men. A resolution passed without one dissenting colony that these united colonies are and of right ought to be free and independent states. Well, it was one thing to declare that, but it was quite another again to see that come to fruition. The victories of freedom today are all blood-bought and blood-won. Heroes, people who served, people who paid the price. I am not for people who denigrate them. We should recognize what they've done. However, there is a greater freedom than we have as Americans politically. And you've but to turn to John the 8th chapter to read about this. I'm going to touch on two verses as we close. Jesus was in one of those controversial discourses with the Pharisees. And he said, you're thinking about political freedom. They said, we've never been in bondage to any man, when in reality, right then and there, they were in bondage to Rome. But Jesus said this, I'm talking about a different kind. Verse 34, verily, verily, I say unto you, whosoever committeth sin is the servant of sin. And the servant abideth not in the house forever, but the son abideth forever. And in verse 36, he said, If therefore the son shall make you free, ye shall be free indeed. You know, there's a lot of folks today that live in America, they're enjoying the political freedoms, but they're not free in the sense that we're talking about here. This is the greatest freedom into which a person can enter. The rest that we have when we know that the blood of Jesus Christ, God's son, has cleansed us from all sin that his triumph over sin, Satan in the grave on the cross of Calvary has become effective for us because we put our personal faith and trust in him. A number of years ago now, but on one occasion, Spurgeon was preaching on this passage, John 8, 31 to 59. In the sermon, he told a story. It was of an English prince who had the opportunity to go and visit the famous king of Spain. And when the English prince got there, The king wanted to show him a 
an honorable welcome. And so one of the things that was part of it was took him down to, to one of the galleys of the Spanish ships. And there in the galleys were men, enslaved. Many of them criminals. That would be why they were there. But slaves, really. Slaves to the oars. To row those vessels. The king said that in honor of the visit of the English prince, he would give him the privilege to free one of those slaves if he wanted to. So the prince began to walk among them down the center. He walked up to one man and he said, My poor fellow, I am sorry to see you in this plight. How came you here? I just, I hear the British in this. <laughs> tickles me. My poor fellow, I am sorry to see you in this plight. How came you here? Ah, sire, false witnesses gave evidence against me and I am suffering wrongfully. Indeed, said the prince. And passed to another man. My poor fellow, I am sorry to see you here. How did it happen? Sire, I certainly did wrong, but not to any great extent. I ought not to be here. Indeed, said the prince, and went on to others who had similar renditions. He finally came to a man, walked up to him. My poor fellow. And the man started, Sire, I am often thankful that I am here. For I am sorry to own, that is to admit, that if I had received my due, I should have been executed. I am certainly guilty of all that was laid to my charge, and my severest punishment is just. The prince looked at him. It is a pity that such a guilty wretch as you are should be chained among these innocent men. Therefore, I will set you free. I'm telling you, there came a day when I made that confession that I was a guilty wretch. And there came a day when seeing that, I put my faith in Jesus Christ as my personal Savior and was set free. And I rest in that today. I need no other. I do not need church membership, though it is a good thing, and I've preached it all my life. I do not need good works, even though Paul says we should be careful to maintain a pattern of them. I need but one, and he is my Savior. For I am saved today through faith alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Someone came to the great scientist who happened also to be a Christian, Michael Faraday. He was on his deathbed and some journalists came and they wanted to ask him about his speculations concerning the soul and death. Speculations, the old man scoffed. I know nothing about speculations. I am resting on certainties. I know whom I have believed, and I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day.
I wave my palm branch in that claim. 